When you think of Bible prophecy, your mind may not gravitate to books like Ruth, but it should. Here's Pastor James to explain. You look at the book of Ruth and you say, oh, there's nothing prophetic about this. Really? There's nothing prophetic. Has anybody thought about the parallels that existed with Christ being the kinsman redeemer for the world? That whatever was robbed and taken away from us, God is the one that brought back to us the restoration of families as it sits and everything else. I'm, we don't even have to get into the picture of Christ as the kinsman redeemer of our souls and what happened in giving us the inheritance through adoption. That's a whole other story. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Cause all I need is you. We're studying through the Bible here at Light on the Hill, learning about powerful prophecy as we do. Today we'll be in Judges and Ruth. Perhaps like many, you're under the impression that both of these books are void of prophecy, but as you'll hear today, they actually contain some very powerful prophecy. Here's our teacher, Pastor James Cadiz, to begin. Judges chapter 13, and we're going to go somewhere with this. And this makes such a big difference when it comes to Bible prophecy. Judges chapter 13. Look at the declaration of Samson. God's promise to Samson's mother concerning her child is what we're about to read in verse 5. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And by the way, that was prophetically fulfilled. Even when he was taken into custody by the Philistines, eventually the way his life ended was tragic. He literally took his own life in order to destroy the lives of his enemies. But his sexual sin, his desire to sleep with prostitutes, and all the other evil things that he did is what got him to lose the strength that God had given him supernaturally because it led him to go to the place where he broke the vow that he had given. By the way, once again, this is another example of why you need to know the whole word of God to better understand Bible prophecy because if you knew the word of God, you would know what the vow of the Nazarite was. You would understand what that actually means. That becomes, by the way, very significant in 1 Samuel. When we go over that, there's some significant areas. After he was captured by the Philistines, he was blinded, literally blinded, permanently blinded. Don't have to get into the picture of that. Pretty ugly. He was shackled to grind grain in prison. And his strength eventually returned as his hair grew. And my guess is as his heart was made right. And he destroyed the pillars that he was set in between, which in essence caused the building to collapse and killed his enemies. By the way, it's very interesting when you talk about the prophetic relevance of what happened with Samson. I do think we should talk about this for just a second. When you go to Israel today, if you go with us, we will do something for you that the Israeli Defense Force does with all of its young graduates, right? Uh, when they go through their training. We will take you to the Holocaust Museum 
And what they do at the Holocaust Museum, it's called Yad Vashem, by the way, it will make you angry. Um, I stopped walking into Yad Vashem after probably my fourth or fifth trip to Israel. As a matter of fact, the only reason why I walked through it this last time was because I was in Israel with my wife who had never seen any of it. You know, this was her first time. They take them through Yad Vashem. They show them exactly what had happened in the story of the destruction of precious Jewish life. Then take them to Masada and they show them what happened in Masada. In the story of Yad Vashem, they actually show how Hitler killed their people and they died at the hands of a tyrannical leader. At the story of Masada, they show how the overwhelming majority of the people took their own lives because they would rather have had their lives taken than be under bondage to another nation again. And then as they're up there at the top of Masada, they tell them the story of Samson. And this is what they tell their kids. They say, you will never have, ever again, will we ever allow something like Germany happen to us. And then they look at them on Masada and they say, never again will we ever allow Masada to happen to us. And then they tell them the story and they say this, never again what happened with the Holocaust Never again will we have that complex. Never again will we have the Masada complex. But if we must, we will have the Samson complex. We will take ourselves with everybody else if we must do so to preserve our nation. By the way, that's why they're the greatest fighters in the world right now, okay? I mean, if you really think about it, that's why they are the most uh, prominent and uh, smartest and, and most gifted military, that what they do. Uh, I think, I, I used to be able to say that about the United States of America, but I think we're, we're declining quickly. We're declining quickly because why people like the Israeli Defense Force or the Israeli Air Force or uh, their secret service uh, equivalent or their intelligence equivalent, the Mossad, is learning how to defend themselves from their nation, our people are learning how to use proper pronouns, right? It's sad, but it's true. That's the direction where things are going in. Right in between Judges and 1 Samuel, right in between is the story of the book of Ruth. Now, a lot of people look at the book of Ruth and they would say, well, James, there isn't anything really prophetically significant with the book of Ruth. Yes, there is. We've talked about this on multiple occasions. First of all, understand this. In order to understand the prophetic relevance of the book of Ruth, what you have to understand is you have to understand the stories behind and in front of the book of Ruth. There is no way you are ever going to understand the prophetic relevance of Ruth if you do not know what the Bible says concerning many of the variables that existed within Ruth. Perhaps one of the things that I should bring about here is the story of Amalek, who was Naomi's husband. They had two sons. By the way, the two sons were also very interesting people. Mahlon, Echelon. They died, both of them. They married two women. One, of course, was Orpha, and the other one was Ruth. Very interesting what happens here, and you need to understand this. When a man marries a woman in biblical days, and they are Jewish, if they do not have a son together, then the woman would be obligated, if the man dies, to marry somebody who was part of that man's lineage. 
So in many cases, it would be a brother. In some cases, it might be a slightly more distant relative that carried the name. But the idea behind it was God wanted to make sure that family lines would be preserved so that inheritances could be passed down from generation to generation. Now, something very interesting happened here. Naomi did have sons. She had two. So when her husband died, she was a widow forever. That was it. And she had hope in the fact that there would be a future for her children and grandchildren because she had two sons. Both of her sons died. Naomi does one of the most painful things that any mom could do in that situation, realizing she has no grandchildren, especially no sons. And she tells the two women, Orpha and Raus, go back to where you came from. Go back to Moab and go find a husband. I have no hope. Orpha says, all right, I'll take you up on that. Raus turns to Naomi in what I believe to be a very powerful and Christ-centered, God-fearing act. And she says, no, I'm going to go where you go. Your God will be my God. And as blown away as Naomi is, she says, okay. I believe that Ruth knew that God had something in store for the both of them. Naomi was a bitter woman. She was very, very hurt over what had happened. She ends up going back with her mother-in-law, settling in, and because of their financial condition, you, again, this is where you have to know the word. If you don't know the word, you're not going to understand the prophetic significance of this all. They had to take advantage of the system that God had created for welfare. Now, the welfare system was very simple that God had created. It was remarkable. It demanded people to work, and it created accountability, right? And the whole idea was this. If you cannot afford a farm, or you have no land, or maybe your farm burned down, or something happened where you cannot feed your family, then the farmers were required to leave the outside of their farms untouched. They were not allowed to harvest the outside of their farms. Now this did a couple of things. Number one, it helped to stop property right disputes from happening, right? Because why would they be worried if the borders were kind of ambiguous anyway, because the borders didn't really belong to them in the sense that they were designed to feed the poor, right? So when somebody fought or argued over, this is where my property line is, it didn't really matter because at the edge of their property line and the edge of your property line, you had to give to the poor, right? So it was kind of made for them. But the more significant reason why God did that, which by the way, yeah, borders were important even for land, okay? Even for, even for private ownership, borders were important. And uh, anyway, that's a whole other story. So, and people who know Bible prophecy know why borders are important and the significance of borders being absent. So I just think that we should, we should understand that. Anyway, so the rule was that the farmers were to leave the outside untouched. Now, why was that the case? Because those that did not have anything for themselves or their families, potentially widows, like in the situation that Raus was in, or something very similar to what Naomi was in, or somebody who was just poor and out of luck, 
could still feed their families. And the way they would feed their families is during the time of harvest, they would go out to farms and they would glean from, that was, that's what it was called, they would glean from the outer edges of their farms. And as they would glean, they would take all of that uh, crop and they would bring it home. And it was a way that they preserved dignity because other people would see the poorer person working as hard as they worked and they recognized, oh, they deserve this. They worked just as hard. They went out and got it and they did what they could. And of course, it was oftentimes a very uh, powerful dynamic that would take place because the owner of that land and of the farm would witness the gleaners that were gleaning and if the people that were gleaning were people local to the area they oftentimes employed them and gave them an opportunity to reset and start something new for their families it was god's welfare system it was a great welfare system by the way a welfare system that just doesn't give a hoot about what people do and just give away things is never a good welfare system i think there are some exceptions to that rule and perhaps the most significant of those exceptions is when you have people with marked disabilities where they cannot function the way an average person can function where they can't do something with their hands where they can't work maybe you have somebody who's dealing with special needs or um you know that type of thing but look the reality of it is in most cases cases and actually in all cases in those times if you had somebody with special needs or someone that couldn't care for themselves it was upon the obligation of the families that surrounded them to love on them and minister to them right not to let the government hand out something and then rule them and exploit them because that's what's happening right now children with special needs are being exploited by the government right now because the government is paying their uh, whatever is necessary to keep them alive which is oftentimes nothing and those kids are being neglected and exploited. That's exactly what's happening. I hate it. I hate what I'm seeing happening right now. The bottom line was that was the system. Now, this is interesting and very important because Naomi and Raus are in a situation where they have to go glean. They don't have anything. So Raus goes and does it. And she realizes that the owner of the property that she's gleaning from is somebody that is akin, somehow a family member to Naomi. Very interesting how that works. Naomi recognizes that and she says, wait, hold on. <laughs> There's an obligation for you to be redeemed. This is where we get the word kinsman redeemer. By the way, understand Christ is called the kinsman redeemer. This goes back to prophetic. You look at the book of Ruth and you say, oh, there's nothing prophetic about this. Really? There's nothing prophetic. Has anybody thought about the parallels that existed with Christ being the kinsman redeemer for the world? That whatever was robbed and taken away from us, God is the one that brought back to us the restoration of families as it sits and everything else. I mean, we don't even have to get into the picture of Christ as the kinsman redeemer of our souls and what happened in giving us the inheritance through adoption. That's a whole other story. But here's where it becomes really significant, really prophetically significant. Naomi recognizes what's going on. She seeks to orchestrate things to where her and Boaz come together. Boaz has an eye for Rauth. Rauth likes Boaz. Boaz says, look, I am technically one of those guys that can act as the redeemer here. I can do this. But there's one other person that falls into secession that has to be given the first right of refusal, for lack of a better term, right? That has to be given the option. Now, this is the way it worked according to the law. And for those of you that might not know this, what would happen is they would go to that person and they would say, this woman was widowed by your relative and you have an obligation 
to take her as a wife and have a child with her so that the family name will be preserved. Now, most of the time, the, the Redeemer would take on that role and do exactly what was necessary because it was socially acceptable to do. In this case, that person did not do so. And when that would happen, what would take place is the shoe off the bottom of that person would then be removed and then the woman would spit in that person's face. By the way, interesting, you would think, what's so significant about the shoe issue? Perhaps one of the more effective ways to illustrate this in the modern day is is that it's extremely insulting to put a shoe in the face of somebody. Extremely. Anybody, any of you that know me know that you cannot sit next to me and cross your feet where the bottom of your shoe is pointing at me. If the bottom of your shoe is pointing at me based on the culture I was raised from, I don't like it. It's actually insulting to me. And I'll actually get to the point if I know you well, I'll just tell you to knock it off. Right? I'll knock your actually foot off if that actually happens. Right? Because it's insulting. But perhaps one of the, the more uh, prominent examples of something like this that had happened that everybody was clueless about. Even looking at the news commentators, I was thinking, you guys are a bunch of complete dummies, which the mainstream media always has been, right? But I don't know if you remember when George Bush Jr., was in, I believe it was in Iraq. He was at a press conference and one of the people in the press conference took his shoe off and threw it at the president, right? And everybody said, what happened to the Secret Service? And remember the president ducked and, and he looked all weird and all that. And the Secret Service, they were like, what happened? Why did the Secret Service allow it? And so on and so forth. And my statement was, forget the Secret Service allowing that or not allowing it. Why did the president's foreign policy people let that happen? The very moment that happened to the president, he became toothless to the rest of the Middle East. He no longer was respected. His foreign policy was trash to the Middle East. Why? Because a common everyday person was able to show the leader of the free world was pretty much nothing. He was like dirt. The moment they allowed that shoe to be thrown at him and he ducked, and he did exactly what he did. Whoa, looked a little shaken. There was not a single king in Saudi's royal family. There's not a single world leader that would give that guy any time of day. At least not really. Because his credibility was thrown into shame. By the way, very true, his foreign policy completely died at that point. Completely. I mean, his foreign policy was dead before he even started as a president. You know, anyway, that's a whole other story. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, so that happens and Boaz takes on the marriage relationship. Here's the thing that's really interesting. And this is something that is powerfully prophetic for us. The picture of how Ruth and Boaz came together is a very beautiful and prophetic picture of what Christ did for the church. He redeemed the church. That in and of itself is enough to walk away with and go, wow, how powerful. But God chose to take it a step further and make it even more incredible for us. Think about it like this. Ruth had no hope when her husband died. Naomi had no hope when her husband died. It was over. Especially when her children died, it was a wrap. But Raus, knowing that she had some potential to go back to Moab and remarry, and it would have been easy, said, I'm going to do the hard thing which is the right thing. And I'm going to stay with Naomi. When Naomi ends up going from a bitter woman to a happy woman, because what takes place is Ruth marries Boaz. 
Boaz and Ruth come together and they have a child. His name is Obed. Obed has a child whose name is Yeshi. And Jesse has a child whose name is David. Yes, King David. Now let's take it a step further because not only was King David noted as the greatest king of Israel, there's some debate between him and of course Solomon, his son. But here's where it becomes even more significant and we're going to go over it next week. David, as king, tells the prophet that he wants to build a house for God, build a temple. The prophet says, go for it. That night, the prophet goes to rest. God says, hey, you didn't talk to me about this. You go back to David and tell David his hands are way too bloody. He can't build the temple. His son will do it. But I want you to tell him this. David, sorry, I messed up. God said you can't build the temple, but your son will. We should still call it David's temple for a lot of reasons. We could talk about that next week. But he says this. He says, look, you're not going to build me a house, David, but I'm going to build you a house. And he begins to tell David a prophetic word that is so powerful, it's not even funny. And that basically is this. And we'll get into it a little bit more in depth when we get into the book of Matthew. But he basically says that you will be the one whose line produces the Messiah. And they will rule, those of your dynasty will rule in perpetuity. And the one who's going to rule in perpetuity, of course, is Jesus, who is the son of David, of course. What's, by the way, very interesting about that is if Jesus was going to still be the son of David because of the curse of Yehoniah, who was also from the line of David, then the only way that that could happen is by immaculate conception. Isn't that funny how that works? You have to be born of a virgin in order for that to be prophetically true. If you stop for a moment to consider the story of Ruth, the story of Ruth sets up the credibility of the bloodline of Jesus as it relates to Bible prophecy. And by the way, that has a hugely significant bearing on the rest of the things that still have yet to come true according to Bible prophecy and what we know. Guys, this is why it's important to know it all. This is why it's important to understand the context. We're going through the Bible with Pastor James Cadiz here on Light on the Hill. This series, entitled In the Volume of the Book, emphasizes the prophecy found in every book of the Bible. To catch what you may have missed in the series, just go to lightonthehillradio.com or listen wherever you get your podcasts. The studies are also available through the Light on the Hill app. We're thankful for the listeners that come alongside of us with prayer and even financial support. You help us do what we do each day, and we're so grateful for that. To donate today to help us deliver God's Word daily, visit lightonthehillradio.com. You can also give through the Light on the Hill app. If you enjoy Bible prophecy and want to hear even more, I recommend Pastor James's online videos. Many of them relate to current events and connect to Bible prophecy. You can access them at jamescadiz.com. You can also access Countdown to Eternity there or at countdown2eternity.com. Whether you're a longtime listener or new to our program, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your Bible prophecy questions and your prayer requests. You can do so through our website, lightonthehillradio.com. Let's see what's in store for next time as we close today. So there it is. You have all the books right there. The first, you know, several books that give you that understanding. And then 
Um, we've got some interesting ones next week. We'll have First and Second Samuel. Then we will pursue what I think will be First, Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles at the same time. Uh, but next week we'll spend time with First and Second Samuel and hold on to the seat of your pants because you haven't seen anything yet until you've looked at that. And the story starts with a person you might not be familiar with, and that is a sweet, wonderful, and amazing woman by the name of Hannah. And Hannah has some very significant bearing in um, the precious children that I have to this day. Very interesting story there, but it's all prophetic. And the prophecy that you will find just in Samuel alone is enough to absolutely blow your mind. It is absolutely mind-boggling. And there's so much that you're going to learn from it. And then once we get into the Kings and the Chronicles, and then, we, it, it, then it really becomes, it just, it, it, it's just awesome. My hope and my prayer is that you'll go back over these books that I'm talking about, educate yourself more and more in them. I have, I have teachings in all of these books. You can go back and you can listen to all of these books for free and by teaching through all of them to give you greater depth and insight as in what's going on. But the reality of it is you now have what it takes to be more equipped in prophecy than you ever have before, but we're not done, right? We have 17 more parts to this um, and more studies where we're gonna go over it, lots of information, but hopefully it's uh, insightful and exciting for you as you begin to develop a library of knowledge um, in understanding. Um, listen, I'm telling you guys, you gotta believe me when I say this, when we get to the point where we start the book of Revelation, Revelation is gonna feel easy to you. You're, you are gonna see things before I tell you them by continuing to understand the Old Testament and the, the, the prophetic significance of it all. It's going to just completely blow your mind. So a lot of good stuff there, and that's all. Again, we'll bring you First and Second Samuel next time on Light on the Hill. Read ahead and plan to join us. This program is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Signal Hill. I have found that peace only comes from me. I have found that joy only comes from you, cause all I need is